Blog Talk Radio. Yeah, sir, and error over there, aren't they? I can get them. I got them. You got them? I got them. Good evening, everybody. Chris and Beth here again. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> uh, we are, we, we, we have been more organized, let's put it that way. This, uh, <laughs> this this has uh, been uh, been a two weeks. It has. It, it started with we went camping last week. That's <laughs> why look out. Had a lot of fun. Had a lot of great fun. It, after the first full day. After the first full day. Where we got completely totally flooded. Had to buy a new tent and go to the laundromat and dry everything out. Uh, so glad Glenn was awesome meeting up with him. We didn't stay on the Honda Loop. We were the next loop over, but we did go walk the Honda Loop almost every single day that we were there. Sometimes, and had an experience. Somebody decided to, you know, touch me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, how you doing? We're here." And I'm like, "Yes, dude, you can stay here. You're not following me. Thank you. Goodbye." Um, but yeah, so had a nice little kayak. Well, we're not kayaking. Yep. Hi, Lulu. Uh, Lulu, you gotta come say hi. Do not bite the cables, Lulu. Good girl. Uh, then we went over to Piney Point Lookout, uh, or Piney Point Lighthouse, and uh, somebody found me in the Keeper's Quarters. Uh, but very cool place to go check out as well. Yeah, so. And then we came home. Yes, then we came home, and we, we spent a good portion of that Saturday uh, at Hanover Tavern for their uh, for the Autumn um, Fest. Hanover Autumn Fest was up there. Uh, I uh, was uh, serving some beers for a couple hours. And I was painting faces. Yes, you were. So had some fun up there. Uh, and then we managed to finally catch our breath a little bit. So, uh, yeah, had to go home and launch some tours. And, yeah. Yeah, kind of get back into the swing of things. And here we are. Uh, but everything that took place between the last show and this show has led to this let's see, let's see how well this script goes. <laughs> we forgot that we had a show. You forgot. I knew. I did. So I just let the time get away from me. I had script done. He had to edit. I had to edit. <laughs> and the time got away from me. So here we are. And uh, hello, Glenn. There's Glenn. And we've got Patrick here. Yes, happy Monday. Organization is overrated sometimes. Cheers to that. Usually I'm fully <laughs> organized. And well, guess what? It's coming up on October. Chaos rules. Yes. <laughs> Starting this Friday. But that'll be a subject for another day. Anyways, but yeah, so we are here tonight to share with you some stories about some haunted objects. Haunted objects. If you see me looking this way, the girls are shaking the lady buttons. Yep. yep. I'm just making sure they don't go through the window. They're having fun tonight. It's <laughs> all the manners. Yeah. But yeah, so we are, yeah, some haunted objects. And so um, now... Perhaps you've heard tales of paintings that have a, a presence beyond the paint on canvas, or maybe the horrifying nightmares that started after someone brought home a beautiful trinket from the antique dealer. Do these objects have a life of their own, or maybe they're cursed? Many people think so, and the spectrum of haunted objects is as vast as it is 
spine chilling. On this show, we'll bring you some tales of objects that are fascinating, but perhaps best left alone. Seek out these objects and others like them at your own peril. Now, this is uh, going to be the uh, volume one. Yeah, there's a lot of haunted objects out there. Of course, we covered creepy dolls yep. a couple times, and we still have more. Yeah, so, yeah, now, if you were to split haunted objects into, say, smaller genres, there are two categories that would probably dominate all the others, haunted dolls and haunted paintings. Now, we started doing a series of haunted dolls last year, so we're going to set them aside for the sake of tonight's show. No haunted dolls tonight, and they will not be a part of our haunted objects series moving forward. We got they're our, illegal all their own. Yeah, they're illegal all their own. So no haunted dolls tonight, but we do have plenty of other haunted objects to talk about. Now, we've actually talked about haunted uh, painting before and craft. Yes, we did. Um, that was so just a couple weeks ago. That was, yeah, that was just a couple weeks ago, so we have briefly touched on category number two, but we're going to stop some more of the more interesting ones. Yeah. Yeah, but if you are interested in hearing about haunted dolls, the uh, the last two episodes that we did on those were on April 20th and May 18th of last year, not this year. And the, gosh, it's been over a year since we chatted haunted dolls. I'm okay with I don't know. I think volume three might be due. We'll have to get that on the agenda. <laughs> You're going to make me go down that rabbit hole again. So with that said, um, since we are starting the Haunted Objects series, we are going to go ahead. We'll include haunted paintings in this series moving forward. That's only a few of them. I found a whole lot more. Oh, no, yeah. So mm-hmm. we could do an entire series on haunted paintings. We could, but we won't. They will be part of Haunted Objects. And uh, so we'll sprinkle, sprinkle some of them in tonight. As a matter of fact, we're going to be leading off with them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to have multiple volumes of haunted objects in the uh, month, weeks, months, and, well, years ahead. Yeah, so. this is just scratching the surface. So with that little disclaimer acknowledgement said, there can be no doubt that paintings have a powerful influence over us. When an artist puts brush to canvas, they are in a sense channeling their spirit and imagination into the images that we take in. These images can reduce us to tears, they can inspire us, disgust us, or touch on any point of the emotional spectrum. However, can paintings have other influences over us and our world as well? Are there times when rather than channeling the artist, they are channeling inscrutable powers beyond our understanding as well? Are they sometimes more than mere paintings, saturated with the unknown, uh, with the unknown rather than just paint? While paintings can certainly have a powerful effect on us, it seems that in some cases they can have an effect beyond mere emotions, reaching out to have an effect on our reality as well, or perhaps to be home to mysterious powers. So, did you want to get in with the first one? Yeah. Just trying to get you to show yourself. Here's the Zoe, little boy. <laughs> so one of the most notorious and well-known haunted paintings is a work by Bill Stoneham called The Hand Resistance, which has achieved so much notoriety that it is frequently billed as the most haunted painting in the world. The story starts back in 1972 when Stoneham was living in California and was contracted to produce two works of art per month for gallery owner Charles Fairn. Fargus. With his deadline coming up for his next painting, Stoneham decided that he was going to create a work based on an old photograph of himself when he was five, titled After a Poignant Poem His Wife 
had written about him and about how he had been adopted and never known his biological parents. The result was an image depicting the young boy and a decidedly creepy-looking dead-eyed female doll standing in the front of a glass panel door against which numeral spectral hands pressed out from the darkness beyond the glass. According to Stoneham, the boy is himself at age five. The doorway represents a barrier between the waking world and the dream world. The doll is the one who will guide him through the doorway into a world of fantasy. As for the hands, the artist has cryptically said, the hands were all possibilities. The painting went on to be displayed at the gallery in Beverly Hills in California, where it was eventually mentioned in the Los Angeles Times by the noted art critic Henry Selden. At this expedition, the painting caught the attention of the actor John Marlin, who had played the role of Jack Wolf, the, uh, the godfather, you know, the guy who finds the decapitated horse head in his bed. Yes, that guy. Well, Marley purchased the painting and so on went on to other things. In the meantime, within a year of coming into contact with the painting, three people died. The first was the art critic, Seldes, then the gallery owner, and then the actor who first purchased it. After the painting sort of disappeared, and it was supposed to be forgotten until uh, 2000, when an elderly couple found it abandoned behind a California, California brewery that had been turned into an art space. Although the deaths associated with the painting were already strange enough, it was the coupled acquisition of the painting and its descent into a terrifying spiral that would truly begin and would become a work plagued with strange phenomena. In February 2000, the California couple put the painting up for sale on eBay with an ad that some extreme, excuse me, with an ad that made some extremely chilling and bizarre claims that it was cursed, haunted, or both. The ad said that the sellers had been very perplexed as to why such a perfectly good painting had been discarded, but that they had quickly realized why. The ad generally reads like a dire warning rather than an ad. The ad in all caps, rife with spelling errors, was bizarre. Well, we can't very well read it to you. I will twitch with every word if I try. Um, let's just say we're going to paraphrase it. When we received this painting, we thought it was really good art. A picker had found it at a, abandoned at an old brewery. At the time, we wondered why such a seemingly perfect fine painting would be discarded like that. Today, we don't. One morning, our four-year-old daughter claimed the children in the picture were fighting and coming into the room during the night. Now, I don't believe in UFOs or Elvis being alive, but my husband was quite alarmed at this. To my amusement, he set up with a motion-triggered camera for the night, and for three nights, there were pictures. Pictures of the boy seemingly exiting the painting. We decided that the painting had to go. As that goes on with the disclaimer that any potential buyer, for, um, for any potential buyer, that the sellers are not going to be liable for any paranormal activity that they might experience in relation to this purchase. The strange ad was accompanied by images taken by the motion tricks camera that sh claimed to show the doll threatening the boy in the painting with a pistol in her hand. There is also a warning not to use the painting's image in the, as a computer background wallpaper and not to show it to juveniles or children. As you imagine, the story quickly spiraled into new levels of weirdness. The ad drew the amount of attention occurring to over 30,000 views. Not too bad considering we're in the early 2000s before going viral on social media was the same. 
It rapidly became the stuff of legend. Many people who went on to look at the hands resist him reported immediately feeling queasy, faint, or being overcome with a sense of unease. But it seemed that these disturbing effects were not even limited to seeing the thing in person. Many people reported the strange occurrences merely by viewing the painting online. Some people said that they felt nauseous, faint, dizzy, or irrationally terrified when looking at the image. While some others claimed that their children would sometimes run away screaming when they saw it, or that infants would cry in its presence. A few online viewers claimed that their printer would malfunction if they tried to download an image of the painting. Even more ominously, that were those who reported hearing eerie, disembodied voices or feeling hot gusts of air when looking at the painting, blanking out for long periods of time and being gripped by some unseen force, being grabbed or tickled by invisible hands, or even having their minds controlled by some mysterious entity. We have a rapt audience over here.
starting from 1985, it was claimed that firefighters were finding completely undamaged copies of the crying boy amongst the ashes and rubble of burned-down houses, always lying face down on the floor. In over 50 house fires, the crying boy paintings were claimed to have inexplicably avoided fiery destruction and to have ended up in the same position face down. It was also reported that homes which had copies of the paintings were prone to a higher rate of house fires than usual. Numerous psychics would go on to make claims that the portraits were haunted by the ghosts of the many orphans who had died during World War II, and the whole story almost took on an air of an urban legend. It must be noted that the original story appeared in the British tabloid newspaper, The Sun, so it should probably be taken with a grain of salt, yet many have insisted that the prints are actually capable of repelling flames. The Sun actually organized mass bonfires for owners of the paintings to come out and burn them, with many participants saying that, indeed, they seemed to burn remarkably slowly. We're not getting this painting. No, no, we're not getting this painting, no. But the British tabloid, the Sun, hey, that was cutting, in, cutting news for the men in black. That's true. <laughs> I mean, that's probably where all your ends are. Yep. So the crying, yep, and there's the crying. Hey, Steve Bills, how's it going? Have you recovered? <laughs> we haven't. Yeah. <laughs> and we weren't even on the ghost hunt. Nope. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. This past weekend was the world's biggest ghost hunt, world's largest ghost hunt. Sorry, we had tours. We weren't hunting. We were not hunting. We were recovering from uh, from camping, and uh, yeah, we had tours to get going that night. So we did not participate in the largest ghost hunt. But Steve and his friend, the team at Transcend Paranormal, did. They went up and they uh, did an investigation up at the Dunmore Inn up in Mineral. Yeah. So the lovely but Inn up there. Wonderful crew up there. Yes. Uh, always have a wonderful time up at, uh, at Dunmore. If you've never gone, definitely go up there. It's a fantastic place to just relax and chill and unwind. And yep. Who knows? You might have a ghost kitty place. Yep. We got the place back in January. Yep. Hard to believe that's been eight months now. Yep. Oh, we're just being your girl. Well, moving on. We do have one more haunted painting for you. And this is this last one, this is kind of a little bit of a different one. This is a painting of a photograph. Now, in the mid-1990s, this is a pretty recent story, too, an artist known only as Laura P. was making a living off of creating paintings based on photographs. And her attention was caught by an odd photo taken by commercial photographer James Kidd. The photograph in question shows an old-fashioned stagecoach in the foreground along with a rusty wagon. The strange thing is, looming off to the side, there is a wispy figure that appears to be headless and which Kid insisted had not been there when the photo was taken, instead appearing upon development. Although Laura was not sure what exactly drew her to the picture, she became overcome with an irresistible urge to paint it and went about creating a 16 by 20 inch oil painting based on it. The artist reported that almost immediately upon starting the painting, she was overcome with a palpable sense of dread, fear, and unease, to the point that she was hesitant to even finish it. Yet something compelled her to keep on painting through this overwhelming sense of doom that was hanging over her. When the ordeal was over, 
the painting finished, and it was titled Painting of a Headless Man. It was hung up at a local office where it proceeded to promptly creep everyone right out. I, I don't know. Would your coffee shop buy a painting with the head of guy of a headless guy in her? I'm grand you don't buy her or if you showcase her. Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay, never mind. Taking that back. We have a mural put up instead. Ah, he still has some paintings or some artwork. Yeah. Maybe not painting. I digress. So anyway, uh, but yeah, so they hung this up at a local office and it proceeded to creep everyone out. Workers at the office claimed that as soon as the painting arrived, the papers started going missing, objects would be moved to different locations when no one was looking, and that even the painting itself would move on its own, always crooked, even, with, even when it was constantly being straightened. After a mere three days of freaking everyone out, the office asked Laura to take the painting back. When she moved with her husband to a new home, the painting went with them, and so did whatever mysterious force it was imbued with. At the new home, the couple repeatedly, uh, re yeah, repeatedly heard various anomalous sounds such as knocks, bangs, footsteps, and other less definable noises, which always seemed to happen in the general vicinity of the painting. Additionally, other weird occurrences started happening with increasing frequency, such as objects moving on their own, spilled salt standing next to an upright salt shaker, doors opening by themselves, roof leaks that even professionals called in to investigate could not explain, and the dogs suddenly growling or being spooked for no discernible reason, and other similarly minor but generally unsettling events. One alleged incident seemed to be more sinister when a glass Laura was drinking from suddenly broke in her hand and a large piece of the jagged, shattered glass vanished without a trace. Laura told a friend about these strange events falling her house, but the friend was highly skeptical and even reportedly laughed out loud when she saw the painting itself. According to Laura, when the friend returned to her home that night, a large clock that had been hanging on the wall for nearly 40 years suddenly fell and was smashed to pieces. Coincidence, or did the painting perhaps not like being laughed at? Another friend of the woman came to photograph the painting, and when he was laying the photos out at his home, he claimed to have seen a spectral headless figure looming in the shadows from the corner of his eye, prompting him to immediately dispose of the pictures he had taken. The artist of the painting has apparently lamented the fact that she ever painted painting of a headless man in the first place and has expressed a desire to have destroyed. Several years have passed since the painting was last discussed in public, so we can't say for sure if Laura's desire for the destruction of the artwork has been fulfilled. Can we get painting of a headless man? Might want to look at it before we decide. I did look at it. It's weird. I don't think the stagecoach thing is hard enough. No, it's not. Moving on. <laughs> Tabitha Meadows. Tabitha Meadows. I was on with my paranormal.net. Cool. So, yeah, yeah, everybody was kind of active on Saturday night. Yeah. Whereas we came back and crashed, and crashed after <laughs> launching the tours. <laughs> All right. So, another one of my favorite artists, Edvard Munich. Um, this is one of his 
paintings, but of course his most famous one is known as The Scream. But this is his painting known as The Dead Mother. Uh, now this is, uh, of course, something that if you are familiar with his work, you are familiar with the fact that he's a fairly dark individual when it comes to his paintings. He's been driven nearly insane by his upbringing uh, in the house of a very abusive religious fanatic of a father and a tragic death of his mother and sister from tuberculosis when he was only five years old. The dead mother seems to reflect on some of that angst, despair, and insanity with these elements, congealing into a form that can only be described as truly disturbing painting. It depicts a young girl with her back turned to a bed on which her dead mother lies, as if she's holding her hands to her ears and displays a wide-eyed expression of disbelief. People who have owned this painting claim that the girl's eyes incessantly follow them around and that the sheets on the mother's bed in the painting will rustle or move, or even that the girl's apparition will occasionally leave the painting altogether. So was me trying to uh, show you that he is truly on the edge of madness, or was he able to... Uh, to conjure something unsettling uh, in this art that defies a logical explanation. Now, after seeing his various works, I think it's fair to say that the jury is still out on this question, that he will always be known for his precarious tether to reality as we know it. I do have a unit. You want to read the next one, too? Sure. All right, so this one's The Conjuring Chest, or The Conjuring Chest. Hey, hi, sweetheart. Your family's going to say hi. Or just bound to determine you can not be on the show tonight. Not that I'm a good camera. <laughs> and they're going to see. I hope you all enjoyed your quick glimpse of her. All right. Now, this is, of course, um, comes from a, a large plantation near Frankfort, Kentucky, and this is pre-Civil War era when this chest was actually built. Uh, the plantation owner, a man named Jacob Cooley, ordered a Hotha, one of the enslaved people, to build a chest for his first child. The chest was beautifully crafted, but Jacob was not happy with the result and ended up beating the craftsman to death. The other enslaved people on the plantation vowed that they would avenge the death of their friend and sprinkled the blood of <clears throat> excuse me, the dried blood of an owl in the chest and had a conjure man curse the chest. Now, all those associated with the chest would fall within the person's evil power. Although Jacob never uh, actually fell victim to this uh, malevolence, the descendants of, descendants of him were not as fortunate. Despite apparently being uh, despising the chest, he actually still put it in his unborn child's room. His son was born but died just a few days after birth. The chest was then moved into the second son's room, and he was later stabbed to death by a servant. The third son, John, also inherited uh, one of the plantations, and as a young, happy man, he actually met a woman named Ellie. Ellie and John were soon married, despite him being three times uh, her age, and the couple inherited the chest, knowing of the previous tragedy. Now, because they knew of them, Ellie did not want the chest in their bedroom. She insisted that they get stored away in the attic. Around the same time, Jacob Cooley's youngest daughter, Melinda, eloped with an Irishman named Sean. Now, with nowhere for them to live, Melinda turned to Ellie, and Ellie and John had made uh, well-to-do for themselves. They had actually acquired several farms in Tennessee, 
And so they turned one of these over to Sean and Melinda. While Melinda bore a number of children and worked from sunrise to sunset, Sean became the loathed adultness of the farm. To try to bring some beauty into Melinda's dreary existence, Ellie decided that she was going to send hers the chest. And uh, she basically thought, well, it's been in the attic so long, there hasn't been any um, mishaps or unfortunate coincidences that she believed that, you know, it really wasn't cursed after all. Within days of receiving the chest, Sean deserted his wife for the bright lights of New Orleans, and Melinda fell um, into a deep depression. She took to her bed, and she soon died in exhausted gray-haired woman barely out of her grief. Shortly after that, John was struck, excuse me, Sean was struck in the head by the steamboat's gangplank and died. So both of them quickly got struck down. Ouch. Yeah. If he felt anything at all. Hmm. Uh, now, of course, remember we said she bore him many children, so that's a lot of orphan children now that John Cooley has to figure out where they're all going to go. And he ends up splitting them among uh, among the family members. John actually takes the youngest, uh, Evelyn, to live with him and his family in Kentucky. Now, little Evelyn grows into a beautiful and intelligent young woman, and when she turns 16, she passed an examination through, uh, that allowed her to become a teacher. Uh, she took over a one-room schoolhouse. She actually met and married a Scotsman, Malcolm Johnson, barely two months after she began teaching, and thus stopped her career as a teacher. As a wedding present, Ellie presented them with the chest. Evelyn had uh, had children and even adopted a young girl named Arabella, and the curse was all but forgotten. However, Arabella married some years later, and Evelyn put the girl's wedding dress in the chest. Shortly afterward, Arabella's husband died. Arabella's child uh, died shortly after her baby clothes had been put in the chest. Three other tra- tragedies befall Evelyn's immediate family, but Malcolm isn't one of them. He actually is a huge success. He turns a very shrewd Scottish eye towards the booming business empire at its height, and he has mills, he has houses, he has coal yards, he has a wharf and a dry goods store. Malcolm is extraordinarily wealthy by the time he passes away. Now, Evelyn, at this point in time, is in total comfort in her surroundings, but she's haunted by the memories of those around her who were struck down uh, by some form of hardship, and Evelyn actually ends up taking the chest. The chest is then inherited by Virginia Carey Hudson. Mrs. Hudson thought the tales of the curse were hearsay. Her first baby's clothes were put in the chest, and she died. Another child's clothes were tucked away in the drawer, and she contracted infantile paralysis. A third daughter's wedding dress was stored there, and her first husband runs off. A son was stabbed but survived while she had his clothes stored in the chest. A family of the family, or excuse me, a friend of the family put hunting clothes in it. He was shot in a hunting accident. Sixteen victims, all of whom had one thing in common. Some of their personal clothing had been put in the chest. Mrs. Hudson wanted to put an end to this curse, and so she found what she would hope be the solution in the form of an old friend of hers, an African-American woman named Annie. Annie understood cushions and conjures. The spell cast by the faithful companions would be broken when only three conditions were met. First, Mrs. Hudson would have to be given a dead owl without her having to ask for one. Second, 
second. Green leaves of a willow tree had to be boiled from sunup to sundown. The dead owl had to remain in sight while this was going on. Number three, boiled liquid from those willow tree leaves needed to be buried in a jug with its handle facing east towards the rising sun below a flowering bush. So a stuffed owl is actually given to Mrs. Hudson's son by a friend uh, accomplished the first requirement. Mrs. Hudson plucked the leaves from a nearby willow tree and boiled them in a large black pot. The owl kept watch from the kitchen counter. At dusk, old Annie and Mrs. Hudson took the jug and then with its handle pointed east, buried it beneath the flowering lilac bush outside the kitchen window. Annie said they would know if the curse was broken if one of them had died before the first full day of fall. What a tempting thing with that. Annie died in September. She was the last, number 17. The final owner of the conjure chest was Mrs. Hudson's daughter, Virginia Seamane, and she donated it to the Kentucky Historical Museum in 1976. Supposedly, the curse has been removed, but kept safely in the top chest drawer is an envelope containing out others. The museum's not taking any chance. <laughs> I'm surprised the curse didn't demand a shrubbery. <laughs> it was buried under one to break it. <laughs> a flowering one, no less. The dead owl. That really, I, when I was reading through this the first time, I'm like, wait. A dead owl has to be given to her without asking. This, no. This just, this can't, no. This isn't going to happen. No, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> And it looks like there was a book written yes, about the chest. Was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what was that one called? I don't know about that one. I don't know what the book was on that one. I know. I, I, a, I do remember when I was researching that the book had copied on. Okay. I know that there's a book written on another object that we have yet to get to. Yes. We won't spoil that, but we're getting there. We shall get there. Needless to say, just don't go order a box to have somebody make it for you and then kill them. You'll avoid all of this. That connection is just rude. It's very rude. Then again, there wasn't anything now about slavery in general. So. <sighs> That's another, another thing for another day. Yeah. 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 Anyway. Anyways. So we're going to go ahead. We're going to uh, shift gears from a haunted box to uh, another type of object altogether. Now, in Philadelphia, you can find the Bellroy Mansion. This estate as a whole has a reputation for paranormal activity. But for this evening, we will focus on one particular object in its collection of priceless historical artifacts, the Chair of Death. There are quite a few haunted chairs out there, but I kind of thought that one had a ring to it. Yeah. Now, now this uh, this 200-year-old chair resides in the mansion's blue room, accompanied by other artifacts, including the sterling silver place settings that were used at a celebration dinner attended by the signers of the Declaration of Independence. The chair is believed to have belonged to Napoleon, but its origins are lost to the ages. Some think that an evil warlock built the chair in the 1700s, but there is nothing but conjecture to support this. 
no matter how it came to be, it seems that the spirit of a young woman known as Amanda or Amelia is irrevocably attached to the chair, and she has opinions on those amongst the living who dare come close to it, let alone fitness. The chair earned its ominous name after at least three people died shortly after sitting in it. One of those victims was Paul Kimmins, a former Bellroy curator. Kimmins had been working at the mansion for several years and was skeptical about the place being haunted, as he had never experienced anything himself. However, while escorting a psychic on a tour of Balroy, he saw Amanda floating down the staircase, or Amelia, whatever her name really is. After that incident, he claimed that he saw her everywhere he went, including in his own house, when he was walking down the street, and in the rearview mirror of his car. This caused him a great deal of stress, as you might imagine, and one day he felt so exhausted that he decided to sit down in the chair in the blue room to rest. He died a month later. Another individual who died after sitting in the chair is one of the mansion's housekeepers, though the details of this individual's passing are somewhat scarce. The third person claimed by the chair was a cousin of Balroy Mansion owner George Meade Easby. Like the others, Easley's cousin passed unexpectedly within a few weeks out sitting in the chair. A little background on Easley, he was a talented individual who came to live at the home in his youth when it was purchased by his parents. He was the great-grandson of Civil War Union General George Meade, but he managed to cut his own path through life as an artist, an employee at the U.S. State Department, and an AM radio talk show host. For the last 35 years of his life, Easby lived alone in the home, surrounded by his family's collection of historic artifacts and the many spirits said to inhabit the Balroy Mansion. After the chair claimed its third victim, Easby forbid anyone from sitting in it from that point forward. In each case, the chair's resident spirit seemed to have a role in the passing of those who sat in it. It's uncertain why Amanda or Amelia might feel this way, but it's best not to challenge her lest you come to find out the hard way. I want to go to this mansion, but I'm not going to go to the mansion. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Mr. Uh, Mr. Easby himself, he passed away, I think, back in 2005. Yeah. So, uh, basically. It's actually hanging up on there. Yeah. So, he's, uh, but yeah, he's a pretty remarkable individual in his own right. Yeah. And uh, he definitely embraced the, uh, the, the paranormal occurrences at the mansion. But that might just be something that we'll have to include on a future episode, the Bellarine Mansion in general. Yeah. I remember we'll see. Getting just a smidge ahead of ourselves. Now, another one, as I got through this, I realized that there's another type of haunted object that could have its whole um, category in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Mirrors. Mirrors. Haunted mirrors all over the place. So we actually have a few haunted mirrors we're going to wrap up with here. And uh, the first one is uh, there's kind of a little bit of a grisly story behind it. Yeah, and you probably know this. This is probably one of the most haunted and most famous haunted mirrors out there. Yeah, I, I've definitely heard this story a couple times before. It's been featured on several shows. Mm-hmm. Now, this is kept in Myrtle's plantation in Louisiana. Now, in 1817, an enslaved person named Chloe was caught eavesdropping on a conversation. Her punishment was brutal as she had an ear cut off. This cruel action served as a reminder to Chloe and a warning to any others who tried to listen in where they should not. 
covering her wounds with a green turban, Chloe sought to win back her master's affection by poisoning his family and subsequently nursing them back to health. Now, just know. Well, let's just say Chloe miscalculated very badly, very badly. Uh, dosages were wrong, and uh, she winds up killing the wife and two children. Chloe, Chloe confessed to the fellow slaves, who, fearing that they themselves would be blamed for the death, killed Chloe themselves. Yeah, they hung her. Yeah. So Chloe just had got it from all angles. She gets her ear cut off. She gets, you know, tries to you know, miscalculate, finds up killing a few people, and she gets killed by her compatriot. Uh, but anyways, in that era, tradition dictated that when a family member died, all mirrors should be covered to allow the soul to pass over to the other side. This was done throughout Myrtle's plantation to mourn the loss of the mother and children, except for one mirror that was missed. To this day, people have seen not only themselves reflected in the mirror, but also the trapped souls of the family members that died over two centuries ago. They are not alone, as the spirit of a woman wearing a turban has also been seen on the plantation grounds, believed to be that of the woeful Chloe. And if you haven't heard of that last story, you almost certainly have heard of this next one. All right, so this is the Dybox box. Uh, it's probably one of the creepiest found objects ever sold on eBay. Buying and selling of these objects. Good sketch? Oh, good. Okay, you want me to put that over here? Nope. Um, it's uh, basically become a cottage industry on this auction website. Uh, though many such items have a dubious history centered on urban legend rather than real evidence. The box, however, is in a class of its own. Its haunted history is so terrifying that it actually became the subject of its own movie, The Possession. Jason Haxton and was the Dubox's uh, longtime owner and caretaker. Haxton was a museum director at AP Stone University Museum of Osteopathic Medicine in Kirksville, Missouri. He was a well-respected in his field and traveled and uh, the world speaking about medical history and, of course, museum artifacts. Before Huxton owned the artifact, an unsuspecting Portland, Oregon antique dealer named Kevin Manis purchased the box at an estate auction. Since then, the box has frightened and baffled owners with strange activities that surround it, including Huxton himself. Currently, the famous and infamous Zach Bagans keeps the box at his haunted museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, Kevin first bought the box uh, as a wooden wine cabinet for his antique furnishing shop. It was among a pallet of other items put up for auction, and after he placed the winning bid, Manish was approached by a woman who said, well, I see you bought the box. Thinking it was a family heirloom, Manish offered to get it back, but the woman ran away crying, exclaiming she never wanted to see the box again. Taking the box back to his shop, he left it in the basement because he had planned to do some minor repair work and rub some oil into the wood. Almost immediately, anyone near the box suffered its wrath. 
For example, the shop clerk left along with the box heard cursing and the sound of breaking light fixtures. She fled the shop in terror, never to return. A young couple who bought the box from Madison mysteriously left it on the door's stoop a few days later with a note saying the bat had bad energy. Mattis decided that one cabinet, which hadn't yet associated with the strange happening in the store, would make a nice gift to his mother. However, when Kevin's mother received the box, she suffered from a stroke, leaving her partially blind, unable to speak, and paralyzed. Maybe this is why my parents don't want us buying this stuff anymore. <laughs> I'll let your mom comment on that one, I'm stressed. All kinds of unexplicable events occurred surrounding the box. Anybody who slept near it would have dreams of being pummeled by a demented hag, notice odd scents, and see shadowy dark figures. Fearing for his sanity and afraid of harming or destroying the box might leave some of these spiritual entities in his house, Mana sold the wine box to a college student in an online auction. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> the student also witnessed the unexplainable. When the student's hair started to fall out in clubs, he decided to get rid of the box. Paxton learned of the box through the student's roommate and was curious about it, so he purchased it. Paxton was skeptical. Uh-oh. Heard them. Uh, of the stories associated with the box, but the box saw fit to dispel those doubts immediately. As soon as he brought it home, Paxton had unexplained health problems with his vision, experienced choking fits, saw odd lights and shadows that floated across the floors and ceilings. He experienced prophetic dreams and was stricken with inexplicable welts and hives. Never ask something to prove itself. Just saying. Paxton managed to track the fam- down the family who created the box, and he learned that it was meant to connect a Jewish family with the spiritual world during the Holocaust. The wooden wine box was originally supposed to be buried with a 103-year-old family member, but an Orthodox rabbi refused the request. In spite of his experiences, Haxon saw himself as the box's caretaker, and over a term of his stewardship, his thoughts about the box evolved. Despite the misfortunes afflicted on those close to the box, Haxon was hesitant to part with it. He saw a mixed of relief and regret that all other previous owners experienced when parting with the box, and he decided not to act in haste. Instead, he worked with scientists, Kabbalists, Wiccans, and those in the paranormal community to try to diffuse the energy and put the artifact in a rest state. They ultimately settled on sealing the box in an archaic archaea wood art lined with 24 karat gold. According to Hexton, this helped calm box effects. Over the subsequent years, the box has quietly sat in Hoxton's den while his family went about their daily lives. While Hoxton's wife could care less about the paranormal, his children were a bit more curious. Still, all members of the household treated the box with respect and caution, much like you would a sleeping guard dog. Hexton couldn't imagine being without the box, so it stayed with him. His plan was to have it buried with him when he died. He saw to it as a way to rid the world of this disturbing object. However, his son told his father, I'm not comfortable with that, Dad. 
He's afraid that an action, uh, that such an action would actually be interpreted as disrespectful, and that it might release a curse on the family members that Haxton left behind. All this said, Haxton believes that the box is neither evil nor good. He believes that it was designed and equipped to move a person towards their innermost desire or wish. Of course, sometimes what a person wants is not always a good thing to them or others. Haxton further explains that he feels the box is trying to push those around it forward uh, in understanding of it more fully. The original acting out against its early owners and others was a way of continuing to move towards the ultimate goal of its creator. Those not willing to move it forward received stronger assaults from those until they let loose of the box so they could find somebody who would fulfill its destiny and accomplish the goal or task it was given. So the box itself has a goal. Yes. It has a master plan. The box. It's going to take over the one. It has a master plan. In November 2011, he uh, Hexner released his book about the box, and although he has never planned on writing the book himself, after going through co-authors, he eventually realized the undertaking was meant to be his alone. According to Hexner, he had no choice but to do it in his own way. His last co-author was a brilliant paranormal writer who completely broke down when the box's curse fell in his home and manifested in him, his kids, and his house. Once the co-author sent back all the material provided to him and he stopped working on the book, everything returned to normal. He still refuses to speak of it. Left on his own, Haxton found a mentor, Gerald Fowler, and together they worked on the book for about seven months. They then had it reviewed by several rabbis given the box's origin. Uh, the result was a full history of the box as it was understood, and now 10-year-old publication is available out there for those who would like to read it and dive deeper into the details. After years with the box, Haxton decided it was time for a break from the events that plagued him for his life while he owned it. With that said, he sold it to Zach Baggins, who now keeps the box in the Tom Museum in Las Vegas. Yep. Baggins, of course, has acquired an awful lot of things in that museum. Yeah, it's funny, because uh, Tabitha just mentioned in the, uh, in the, the thread, um, the, uh, hopefully they'll, like, I think it was in reference to various boxes, hopefully they're not all ever brought together in the same place. Oh, that's not a good idea. Yeah, no, not a good idea, but there's, uh, for better or for worse, there is a, oh, yeah, and there's a whole museum that is packing this stuff in there. He's opening a portal. And growing in Vegas. And he's still bringing in more artifacts. We didn't realize when we, there, when we uh, started selecting some of the objects for this, just how many of these objects that we're talking about have been a uh, uh, recently acquired possession by, by uh, Mr. Baggins. Yes. So, yeah. He's been buying a lot lately. He has. Including this next object. <clears throat> Another mirror. So, it's only been a few weeks since we talked about Bella Lugosi and the spirited tales associated with him. But one thing that we didn't touch on is a haunted object associated with the famous actor, Bella Lugosi's mirror. One former owner of the mirror tells a tragic tale of how her uncle was brutally murdered. The significance of her story is that he was in one of Lugosi's homes when it happened. The mirror was close at hand at the time and would have witnessed the crime absorbing the dark energy of the moment. 
She believes that a close friend killed her uncle since there was no sign of forced entry, and the motive doesn't seem to be robbery. The same former owner says that she feels the mirror has something bad attached to it because of her daughter's experiences. Whilst her daughter is unwilling to discuss the events, her sister is happy to relay what she has been told. When looking into the mirror, the first sister felt she saw a hand reaching out to get her. She felt teeth marks against her neck as a shadowy figure appeared in the mirror. The sister goes on to explain that when she slept in the same room as the mirror, she had a nightmare and woke up with scratches on her body. The owner no longer wanted the mirror and claimed that she couldn't sell it or even give it away, which seems a little hard to believe. Surely somebody would want to own a mirror previously owned by the same Bella Lugosi, even if it is allegedly haunted, or in some cases particularly if it is haunted. Uh, now, like the previously mentioned divot box, Bella Lugosi's mirror has found its way to Zach Baggins' haunted museum. Shortly after accepting the mirror into the mirror into the museum, the basement was flooded and was filled with banging and rattling noises. Did something attached to the mirror disapprove of its new home, or perhaps it was just a coincidence? It was right. a bit super clean. I'll reserve that. I don't think Bella likes it there. I was going to reserve that. Anyways, another mirror, and this is our last final object for this evening, uh, and is believed to have been possessed, possessed, like literally possessed, not Mm -hmm. owned, possessed. It's a possessed mirror. Once a year, not all the time, just once a year, by the spirit of Edward John Smith. Now, if that name doesn't quite sound familiar, it might help to add his title, Captain Edward John Smith, the man in command of the Titanic during its first and only voyage. The mirror was left behind at Captain Smith's home in Stoke-on-Trent when he went to sea for the final time. As news of the Titanic sinking at home, along with the loss of so many lives, including Captain Smith, there were many final arrangements to be made. For the captain's homestead, a servant of the captain, Ethelwyn, was offered the opportunity to take one item from his home as keepsake in lieu of wages. At least so the story goes. We'll get back to this in a second. Now, Ethelwyn chose a mirror, but on the anniversary of the Titanic sinking, she came to regret this decision. A terrified Ethelwyn told relatives that she could see Captain Smith's face in the silver-framed easel mirror each year on the anniversary of when the Titanic went down. Since then, the haunted mirror was passed down by Ethelwyn's relatives and was later discovered in a deceased uh, deceased's estate in Wolverhampton before coming into possession of David Smith, who kept it in the vault. Now, only a couple of years ago, <clears throat> the mirror went to auction and was predictably snapped up by, yes, you guessed it, Zach Baggins, and it now resides in his museum where you can find it on display today. Now, haunted or not, there is serious question about the mirror's authenticity, at least as far as its, as its origins are concerned. The only evidence of the mirror's history is a letter that has accompanied the mirror, claiming to have been penned by Ethelwyn's sister-in-law, Hilda, and addressed to someone named Ida. 
It reads, she always spooked me when she said that at times she could still see Captain Smith's face in it on the anniversary of when the Titanic was sunk. While this message is certainly chilling, it leaves much room for skeptics to question its origin. However, even if the mirror did not belong to the captain, there's still something very unsettling about this object and the paranormal claims associated with it. Now, that was very much a, a condensed version of picking this apart and the, uh, the evidence that goes with the mirror. Um, I actually stumbled across an article, very long article, so I just couldn't include all of it. But um, actually goes through bit by bit. This guy dove into um, the supposed, I mentioned supposed Ethelwyn's genealogy, because it's not even um, for sure that Ethelwyn was actually a servant of Captain Smith. And uh, dove into the genealogy and tried to tie in with Hilda and Ida. Couldn't even confirm that Ethelwyn actually worked for the captain. And uh, also didn't really make sense. He dug up literally literal receipts of the payment going to the servants of Captain Smith. And nowhere was there actually any evidence of somebody being paid with a mirror in lieu of wages. So it's kind of, you know, it was kind of interesting, but all the same, the mirror. It's like a lore that's been Yeah, yeah. And definitely a very fascinating one. Probably want to be skeptical about, but with that said, it doesn't necessarily mean that the mirror can't be haunted. Yeah. The mirror may very well be haunted. And, but yeah, it's just kind of one of those interesting things about it. Yep. And I guess I said, even though I didn't, wasn't going to get all of that in there, I guess I just went ahead and recited most of it anyway. Mm -hmm. ah. Anyways, that's what that is. We do have October coming up, which of course is our, you know, extremely busy season. So we're only going to be able to do one um, storytelling session next month, which I believe is the 17th. Yeah, so it's going to be three weeks before we're back. Um, not the usual two. We'll be back in three weeks, and then we'll plan on picking up our normal every other week schedule from that point forward. Yes. So we will be talking about haunted houses because it's October, so why not? So, some um, good old classic okay. chilling haunted houses tales. So you can visit. Yeah. So, um, the city of Vegas falls into a crazy magic portal. All that just needs more nature to go camping out there for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah, it would create quite the hole in the middle of the desert out there. Um, now, as far as things that you can come do with us, you know, obviously come out on a tour. Uh, as we mentioned last, um, Storytelling session, we are going to be partnering with John Marshall starting next month in November uh, for a special event that you can uh, get a ghost tour inside their house with their docents, and then we will take you outside to uh, the neighborhood known as Port End, and we will tell you some ghost stories outside. Uh, so definitely look for that special event. We'll be running two tours a night. Uh, it is very limited ticket-wise, so definitely if you're interested, tickets are available now for that. Um, hmm. We do have another event coming up that we will announce later. Well, not that in October. Yes. Because that will be about two months out from the first one. Yes. So. And, of course, Haunted Key West. Um, yeah. Definitely, if you are still interested in coming and vacationing with us and please doing do. paranormal fun stuff, please, please book that, put your deposits down. It's going to be a lot of fun. We, we, we want a vacation with you all. Yeah. 
Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Good night. Night.